You've heard me talk about Morning Kick, used by former karate champion Chuck Norris. It's a daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions that combines ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale with probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, and even ashwagandha. Just mix with water, stir, and enjoy. Unlike other green drinks out there, this one tastes similar to strawberry lemonade, and I enjoy it. I know I don't eat as many vegetables as I should, but Morning Kick has helped me make up for that, and I feel great. I have more energy and better digestion. It's an easy part of my morning routine. My wife started taking it as well. Go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris for up to 44% off your regular priced order. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, then go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris today. Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, and we have a, a guest, a guest who's actually been on the program before, so a repeat guest, Dr. Jared Moore. Uh, pastor Moore, uh, I know you're pastor of Cumberland Homestead's Baptist Church, so I, I, if that's okay, I'll call you Pastor Moore. How you doing? That'd be great. John, thanks for having me, man. It's it's good to be here. I appreciate your ministry. You know, you have stood. Um, I appreciate fellas that are willing to stand when it costs them. And I know it's cost you in the past to, to stand on, uh, well, the Bible, what, like, it's crazy. Like in the SBC and evangelicalism, if you teach what was taught by everybody, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you're like a pariah now. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I same with you. I just appreciate that you're willing to take a stand. I know this has cost you to some extent as well. Um, I know even l- looking for uh, places to put the book out, which we're going to talk about today, The Lust of the Flesh, uh, the big I, I'm assuming you reached out and we won't maybe name names unless you want to. But some of the big publishers and, you know, they weren't probably that interested, I'm guessing. Well, publishers did not re- did not think they could sell it. Um, really? Yeah. That was the big thing. Publishers did not think that they could sell it because of the content and subject matter. Um, uh, you know, you know, folks, they they didn't they you know what's popular right now is kind of a halfway point between um, LGBTQ affirming and um, total rejection. That's kind of what's popular right now. You know the. Well, I was so going to say. These publishers that you probably reached out to, I mean, they are publishing books on the topic because they'll publish books by authors like, uh, you know, Wes Hill or, you know, I don't even know who all the the names would be, Nate Collins or, you know, whatever. They'll they'll publish these books because, uh, you know, Greg Coles, they, they, they do what you just said. But a book that contradicts that narrative, they just they don't think they can sell that. That's interesting to me because it's the same topic. It's just coming at it from a more biblical perspective (laughs) yeah and and i think that folks were surprised at who was willing to endorse it um i mean when you look at the endorsements it's as good as any i mean any as far as names it's as good as any other book that you're going to find yeah subject yeah i know uh, rosaria butterfield endorsed it who all who who else uh endorsed it the bigger names just Um, people know mark jones endorsed it 
Um, also, Gavin Peacock endorsed it. Um, Mark Coppinger, James White, um, Scott Christensen. You know, all these fellows are legit authors and theologians. You right. know? Yeah. Well, um, freegracepress.com, I know you told me, is the place people can go to find it. And and right now, that's the only place it's available. So don't look for it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Go to freegracepress.com, and you can order a copy of Lust of the Flesh by Jared Moore. And, you know, this is uh, a needed book. It's one of, I don't know if you've uh, read books where, I've, I've seen a few like this, where they, they, they start off and the book says, you know, this is a book that never should have been written, right? And it's kind of like the author's, you know, doing it because they're like, I have to do this. I feel compelled to do this. I think God maybe even wants me to do this, but this really wasn't necessary. This shouldn't have been necessary because this is just obvious stuff. And I feel that way about your writing, just reaffirming what Christians have believed for a long time. Uh, and and now it's being challenged in circles that it wasn't before and evangelical reform circles, even that's the crazy part to me. And so I want to take people on a journey uh, this morning um, a little bit through history and through so, the texts. We've talked before on this show, so I know we might cover some of the same ground, but I think we're going to cover some some new ground as well. And uh, I think it would be good to start with uh, the Bible and you know, what does Scripture say about this? And so um, I know you sent me two clips. Maybe to get us started, we'll play one of them, and then we can play... Uh, the next one, I, I think maybe it'd be good to start with Sam Albury. Um, the conference that he was speaking at, I feel like I've seen this. Did Do you know when this was from, or the clip we're about to play? 2019. Um, I'm not sure what conference it was, though. Okay. So this is from 2019. This is Sam Albury, who I know has been involved with Living Out, but he's one of the premier speakers on same-sex attraction in and and he is uh he goes to some of the most conservative churches believe it or not i remember when i was in lynchburg he came to a very uh known as a conservative reform baptist church in the community and i had people even in my uh, classes who were just you know loving it and going and, and seeing sam albury and so here he is in 2019 sex attraction in and of itself sinful i think this is a common question that comes up if you could address that that'd be great Thank you. So glad that you are able to engage with these topics. Thank you for submitting questions. And um, I say that having seen some of the questions, and they're hard. So I, I, I say thank you through gritted teeth um, with some of those. <laughs> uh, that, that first question is very, very significant. And it, it's, not, it's, it's sort of on topic for, for this evening. But certainly, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, talking about same-sex attraction being part of my own journey, what I was meaning by that was... Um, as a teenager, I became increasingly aware of romantic and sexual feelings towards other men. Uh, became a Christian then when I turned 18. And so then a significant part of my discipleship was what does it mean to bring those experiences under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And obviously a, a key part of that is, is honoring the teaching of Jesus about the, the godly and appropriate place for sex being within the covenant of a, of a marriage between a man and a woman. So I, I knew I would have to, to, um, to say no to those desires in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Um, is same-sex attraction a sin? 
Sounds like it, it, it only requires a monosyllable to answer it. And I hate answers that always begin with, well, Webster's defines. But we, we need to be very clear on what we mean by attraction. Um, some people use the word attraction to mean the capacity, what some people would call the orientation. Is it a sin to have the capacity to be attracted to people of the same sex? And I would say on that issue, I don't think it is a sin. Um, all of us will experience certain forms of, of temptation. Virtually all of us will experience certain forms of sexual temptation. Uh, we don't tend to choose the particular form temptation takes. What is our responsibility is how we respond to temptation. And the Bible is very clear that we need to, we need to flee sexual sin. So the Bible makes a distinction between temptation and sin. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, deliver me from temptation, but forgive me from, you know, forgive us for our sins. So that the experience of being tempted is not in and of itself a sin. It is, however, a reflection of the fact that we have a fallen nature, that we're even tempted in these ways is a sign that we are, we're not the way we're meant to be. Uh, that we have the capacity to be tempted in that sense is a sign that we're fallen the temptation itself is not a sin if we indulge the feeling even only within the privacy of our own minds that is a sin uh, jesus says in matthew 5 that if someone looks with lustful intent he's committed sexual sin in his heart so it's not enough to say well i've got the feelings but i'm not physically acting jesus says actually if we are mentally acting that is a sin. So temptation isn't a sin, but indulging feelings and fantasies, looking with a certain intent, is a sin. So even before we've begun to physically do anything, we've already committed a sin. And by the way, that teaching of Jesus convicts every single one of us. Every single one of us is a sexual sinner. And it's the flip side of, of something good, that Jesus regards your sexual integrity as being so precious that it is not to be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. And theirs is so precious, it's not to be violated in the privacy of your mind. All of us have fallen very, very far short of that. Okay. Um, well, Pastor Moore, he said no to the desires, right? He said it's a sin to indulge. But capacity is not a sin, and we don't choose the form of sin that tempts us. So what do you have to say to that, biblically speaking? It sounds pretty good. Yeah, the, the gift of discernment, you know, to be discerning, you have to be able to tell the difference between truth and almost truth. And Alberry is presenting almost truth. And it's just, it's empty rhetoric. He can turn a phrase. I mean, what he describes as the capacity to be tempted, the Apostle Paul calls his flesh in Romans 7. That's the closest thing, biblically speaking, of the capacity to be tempted by evil. So let, let's look at Romans 7 together just briefly, what Paul sure. says about his flesh in Romans 7, 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul's essentially saying in Romans 7 that he, he thought he was a pretty good person, obedient to God, um, until 
he heard the commands of God and realized that his heart is evil. Right. Right. His heart sprung up when it heard the command and produced covetousness. So he doesn't say it produced a capacity or it produced something that is sinless or something that isn't sin. He says it produced covetousness. So Alberry seems to be saying that there is some sort of pre-desire, some predisposition that is before covetousness. Paul doesn't say that. Right. Right. There there is no, you know, Paul says the flesh is sin. And Alberry, if he argues, you know, I don't know if he argues that the flesh is sin, but he says the capacity is not sin. Well, if you keep going through Romans 7, Romans 7, 9 says, Sin came alive and I died. Romans 7, 11, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Romans 7, 13, It was sin producing death in me. Romans 7, 17, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Romans 7, 20, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but that sin that dwells in me. Romans 7.23, the law of sin that dwells in my members. Romans 7.25, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So he calls the capacity sin. That, that's the first issue, is that Alberry is using non-biblical terms to describe, you know, he's trying to get out of sin through rhetoric and turn a phrase yeah and and you know you got me in trouble uh last time we were on the podcast uh a little bit because we you identified all these evangelical leaders who are saying some they may phrase it differently but they say essentially the same thing that albury's saying here they carve out a category that you don't see in scripture for a a, a non-sinful capacity or desire or whatever word they want to use inclination that is not uh that it's not sinful but it produces sin somehow and um, i thought in our discussion uh with doug wilson there was a right around the halfway point uh you had asked him that question and um a lot of things clicked for me at that point because i thought well that that's a good question how can sin arise from something that's not um necessarily sinful how does that work exactly like what are the mechanics of it i'm open to hearing an explanation but all I keep hearing are there's this category um, and and it's internal temptation. That's not technically sin, uh, which is much different than the way Eve and, and uh, Jesus were tempted. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but um, for those who are not familiar with the background of our discussion here, you know, may, maybe it'd be helpful to explain a little bit of the differences between the temptation that Eve and Christ uh, had and then the temptations that uh, Sam Albury is talking about here. Yeah, so so first, Albury, with his, him talking about Jesus, notice that he goes from same-sex attraction to talking about Jesus, first off. So he, he's comparing having an inner desire to commit sodomy with Jesus' temptation, first off. Which Jesus, in, in Matthew 4, in Luke 4, the devil offered him food, angel protection, and to be the king of kings. He offered him objectively good things. He tried to tempt him with objectively good things because he couldn't tempt him with evil. You know, he the devil goes to the old David with lust, laziness, adultery, murder, 
He goes to the new David or the true David with food, angel protection, and to be the king of kings. All good things that either God was going to give Jesus during his earthly ministry or after the cross. And so to be tempted like Jesus, we have to be offered a good thing through an evil means. And if we reject the evil means, we've been tempted like Jesus. But desiring to sodomize someone in any form or inclination or whatever, your pre-desire or whatever you want to call it, is pure evil. It, it is not good. It is not something that has good in it. It is turning God's design upside down. So we have to call it what it is, and you're not being tempted like Jesus when you have an inner inclination toward evil. Right? So to be tempted like Jesus, it would be like someone coming to you and you're wanting to provide for your family. And so they say, look, I've got this, you know, you sell these drugs for me or, you know, you go do this immoral thing. And you say, no, wanting to provide for your family is good, but rejecting the evil means 100 percent, you know, um, would be you're, you've been tempted like Jesus and you have not sinned. But when you have an inner desire towards evil, an inner temptation towards evil, you've already begun to sin in your heart. That's what is happening with Eve in um, Genesis 3-6. That's what's happening with what Jesus is describing in Matthew 5, where he's talking about uh, lustful intent. Um, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. Um, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. When he's talking about the passions that uh, these men turned worship upside down, and so they turned creation upside down, their sexuality upside down, had passion for one another, and exchanged the natural use of the male or female for unnatural use. And, um, and so in most cases, Christians are not being tempted like Jesus. They're being tempted like David or Peter. What do you say, I know you already covered this in the book, but there was one author, and I can't remember which author it was, you can tell me, uh, who made the argument that when Eve was tempted, the things that she was tempted with were actually objectively good things. The fruit was good, right? And she just wasn't supposed to eat it because of this command of God, and that was the problem. But it wasn't necessarily wrong for her to look on it with desire. Uh, and I know you kind of you smash that argument, but I think people need to hear that because it's compelling for, I think, a lot of evangelicals today. Yeah, so in Genesis 3, when Eve is talking to the serpent, she begins by telling him, we can't eat the tree, we can't eat of the forbidden tree, we can't even touch it, or we're going to die. And then the serpent says, has God really said? And he says, no, it's going to be good for you. And so she then starts to see the tree the way the serpent told her to see it. And then she starts seeing that it's desirable and, and good for food and able to make her wise. And, um, and then she eats. So for Eve, this is something Augustine argues about Jesus, that in order to have an evil inclination, because he is perfect, he would have to will the evil. He would have to create it in his heart. And um, that, that's the thing what people don't realize is that if Jesus had an evil inclination, he would have to fall in his heart in order to have it. 
And the same thing with Eve. I, Eve, I argue in my book that she fell in her heart before she ate with her lips because she right. ate it in her heart before she ate it um, outwardly. And by willing the desire in her heart, she rendered her fall certain. And, um, you know, Doug Wilson says that, well, he argues that this is in an episode with, on Man Rampant with Sam Albury. He argues that Adam could have reached for the forbidden fruit, touched it, and said, oh, what am I doing, and pulled back, and humanity wouldn't have fallen, even though there would be some level of misbehavior in the garden. I'm just like, what in the world kind of argument is that? He, he's definitely mistaken on that. Um, because in order to desire the forbidden tree, Adam would have to create the desire. And something, the, the, person, the author that you mentioned was Melinda Selmez, Okay. And she's a Roman Catholic author, writes for Spiritual Friendship with Wesley Hills, um, you right. know, ministry that he started. And uh, she argues that it was the beauty and object, objective beauty, the goodness of the tree that that tempted Eve. But that's not what the text says. The text says the serpent tempted Eve. It was not the goodness of the tree. Like, why does the serpent have to be introduced in order for Eve to be tempted if the tree, its beauty could have tempted Eve. Right. Right. No. Yeah. That's a good point. And um, I remember the clip you're talking about. And it, I think the point you made was, well, what's this category of misbehavior that isn't sin? That doesn't make sense. There's right. the scripture doesn't talk about this non-sinful misbehavior. If it's misbehavior, it's sin, <laughs> uh, which I think is fairly straightforward. But uh, there does seem to be an incredible amount of um, pressure and just an incentive to categorize uh, certain sins, especially as somehow arising from a, a, an arena that's not sinful. And uh, I think on the same sex attraction issue, it's obvious to us there's a political thing going on here and trying to make evangelicalism palatable to our overlords. Uh, but it's we sacrifice so much that I don't think on the front end we see, we realize we're sacrificing to get there. Um, why don't I play, unless you have something else to say, this Rachel Gilson clip and, sure. uh, and then we can go from there. So um, I'm actually happy that he asked that question because it's kind of, I'm going to piggyback off that. Uh, I read the definition of covenant to be an agreement, especially by lease deed or other legal contract. Mm -hmm. Um, I have gay married parents because gay marriage is legal in all 50 states now. So I guess my question is where should I be in terms of my support of that marriage since it is the covenant of marriage? Should I be looking for, like, should I be supporting a divorce even though God said he hates that as well? Or should I be looking for them to kind of, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think it's a, it's a great question, right? Like we know that the laws of our country don't um, match what God's laws say. That's fine. We don't live in ancient Israel. We don't live in the New Jerusalem. We live in America. So we respect the laws of the land. Um, as we think about, and especially like your parents, like you love your parents. I'm sure you see them all like, I mean, we also get annoyed with our parents, right? Let's be real, right? But you see them as full people, like you see, which is good. Like we should be seeing all the people in our life as full people. Um, so when we think about 
I don't know your parents, I'm not going to speak too particularly into it, right? But as we think about the question of people in a same-sex marriage who maybe come to know the Lord, this is a real situation that I've encountered in my life. I, I met a woman recently in St. Louis who was actually in this, she was in, a, she was in a marriage to a woman and was processing what to do because she had come to the Lord, but her wife hadn't. We need to recognize in this situation, right, that um, these are some very tender things. And if we just walk around being like, I've got some great ideas, like, you don't know anything. You don't know anything about what this relationship has been like, the joys that it's provided, the heaviness it's provided. Like, we never approach these situations um, with swagger. If someone is a trust, if we've got a relationship where they're trusting us to speak in and trusting us to draw near, we want to listen really carefully. I, like with any person, discipleship is going to be a process. And so I'd say if someone in a same-sex marriage comes to know the Lord, it's not like, okay, what we got to deal with first is your same-sex marriage. Like, our discipleship is our whole person. When we come to Christ, there are a lot of things that need attention, that need um, forgiveness, that need healing, that need adjusting. But I do hope that over the course of discipleship for someone in that position, they're going to have a chance to examine what the Bible says about sexuality, and they're going to have a trustworthy person to walk through with them what that means for their life. When you're a child, especially when you're in that weird stage where you're like, for the first time, an adult child relating to adult parents, that's weird, right? It's just weird. You used to be five, and they were old, and now you're like old, but not as old. You just don't... If you're a parent relating to someone in that situation... You've already got that strange dynamic on top of something that is theologically and emotionally really heavy. So I would say as their son, you love them and help them in whatever way, right? You love them as you try to follow the Lord, as they try to follow the Lord, to come around the scriptures together and figure out what's going on. I do think that it's, it's pretty normal for someone who comes to Christ to see, oh, this isn't the way God designed to use my sexuality. They don't have to negate all the good things that they've experienced with the person that they've been in a relationship with to recognize that God says something else about sexuality. They might end up making a very big cost. I mean, I've, I've known some people who decide to stay in that relationship legally, but to live celibately. To break off having sex, that has happened with some, with some couples who both come to Christ. I've known some couples where one person came to Christ and decided that in order to honor the Lord, um, he needed to be celibate, and his partner decided, his husband decided to leave him. I mean, Paul talks about this reality in 1 Corinthians 7, sometimes if a, if a spouse comes to know the Lord, the other spouse can't abide it and they leave, and then that person is, you know, that person is free. Uh, but sometimes it will mean, yeah, sometimes it will mean getting a divorce. God hates divorce. He does. It breaks that image of marriage just as surely as anything else. What's interesting is, though God hates it, it is still sometimes allowed in the context of a broken world. I think it's really challenging, for example, to read the end of Nehemiah. If you're not familiar with Nehemiah, it's like after Israel had been sent away, exiled for their disobedience, and they're being brought back to the land. And they're told, like, 
You were exiled for disobedience. Be obedient, be obedient. Draw near to the Lord. This is beautiful thing. No, okay, I gotta stop, I gotta stop. Um, it's not a sermon on Nehemiah. But even if they come back to the land and they renew their vows and they draw near to the Lord, they end up marrying these foreign women, which is expressly what God told them not to do. The Jewish people needed to stay a unique whole so that when the seed of Abraham came, Jesus, he would be able to fulfill the promises about him. They needed to stay a people. It was very important. And they disobeyed and they got into these relationships. And what Nehemiah did is he broke up those relationships. God doesn't love divorce. Uh, sometimes the consequences of our sin are extremely complicated and very messy. That means we can't be simplistic people and we cannot be proud people and we can't be people who just have these little set answers. When we're walking alongside real human beings, we need to really meet them where they're at. We need to, we need to be whole people. There's this really interesting thing, uh, Matthew 7, 1, you may know it. It says, judge not lest you be judged. So sometimes we make that sound like, um, I'm not ever allowed to say anything about anyone's morality. Which is really weird because in that paragraph, Jesus talks about us correcting each other. The judge has two English meanings, right? It can mean to make a judgment between guilty or innocent, or it can also mean to discern, like I need to judge what classes I'm gonna take next semester. Jesus is not calling us to not discern. He's calling us to not be, think we have the power to declare whether someone's guilty or innocent. We don't have that power. God has that power. But we do have the responsibility to help each other. Later in that paragraph, he says, why are you trying to help your brother with the speck when you have a gigantic log in your eye? And sometimes the way we represent it is as if Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye and sit down and shut up. That's not what he says. He says, take the giant log out of your eye so that you can help your brother with his speck. If you are really excited to be someone who runs around pulling people's specs out, you shouldn't do it. Sit and do something. Okay, make it stop. Uh, that was a long clip, but she just kept getting worse. Um, man, I, where was that? When was that? That was 2018, and she works for the ministry called Crew. Um, oh, that was at Campus Crusade event, or cr Crew. Um crew is campus crew is that yeah campus crew is is formerly campus crusade they changed the name to crew because crusade was you know offensive <laughs> okay so, um wow so um man so, so you're you don't have swagger you have little set answers i i'm hearing from yeah. rachel gilson if you uh say we got to work on on this first um i mean i'm thinking of someone who let's say struggles with uh like like a, a sin obesity there are well not that that's a sin but the gluttony and it's led to obesity and it's obvious that that's a problem in their life um i can see a christian saying well once they get saved you know there, there's going to be all kinds of sins they have that will be corrected as christ does a work in them so don't be the spiritual police and go after every single one immediately uh because you can't but if it's a sin it, like if it's something that's like they're living in consistent sin it's killing them you know they're uh Christians have a responsibility to say something in that case, even if it's gluttony or even, you know, I picked that sin because it's a sin that's often not talked about. But in this case, um, 
I can't see it's like a, the most obvious thing in the world. If you're in that kind of a relationship, I just can't see that as like, well, he's got a tendency towards he eats a little too much. It's like it's just much worse. It's like so much more obvious. So that's just my take. But I, I'd like to hear what you have to say since you wanted to uh, play that clip. Yeah, I, I just want to point out and expose Rachel Gilson for the false teacher that she is. Um, this clip uh, was 2018. She legitimized same-sex marriage. She even she said it was a divorce. If you you can only get a divorce if you're married, right? It's not a divorce if it's a same-sex marriage because there's no such thing as same-sex marriage biblically. God has you can't become one flesh with a same-sex person. It's impossible. Because when you look at Genesis 2, you know, a piece of Adam is removed from him to make Eve. So he's missing something from his body. She's missing her body. And God brings the two back together to become one flesh, which is the sex act of a male and female in the covenant of marriage. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. The two shall become one flesh. That cannot happen in a same-sex marriage at all um god hasn't designed it that way so she legitimizes same-sex marriage in that clip she has never publicly responded to that clip she act, she's memory hold it which is just like a politician i'm so sick of evangelical leaders publicly teaching heresy and that, that's her, heretical teaching to give legitimacy to same-sex marriage Teaching heresy, and then when we raised Cain about it back in June, because she was teaching at an SBC event, me and other pastors raised Cain about that, and um, she released a statement that she affirmed biblical marriage, and she never has addressed these this clip. She's never addressed her false teaching publicly, where she legitimized same-sex marriage in that clip. She said that it was God hates divorce. Well, in the, in the context, he's talking about divorce of marriages that he has joined together, right? Male and female. He's not talking about same-sex marriage. Um, I mean, that, that one clip alone should disqualify her from ever teaching anyone, ever teaching Sunday school. Like, she should not, until she publicly repents. But... But today, you can literally teach heresy, and it can be on video, <laughs> and and be like four or five years ago, and you can just memory hole it and act like it never happened, like just like a just like a politician. Like, who are you going to believe, your own eyes, or Rachel Gilson's statement on marriage that she's released in the past year? Um, but I think it's I think do 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 I even have to? to say what's wrong with that clip not really <laughs> there was something that caught my attention early on before she said all of that she said we respect the laws of the land even if they contradict uh what the bible says and the context is the law that uh profanes marriage and so we i don't know what other conclusion to reach other than well we kind of we let the obergefell decision stand and we we just we have respect it to some extent we don't challenge it i guess and uh that seems to be the the useful purpose that her teaching serves is it, it does help evangelicals make peace with the regime 
in, in, in their minds, at least that they can somehow, um, that they can exist in a state of, uh, a non-threatening state. And so they won't be, uh, you know, censored by the IRS or something like that. I mean, I, I don't know that she's thinking through all those, those implications. That just seems to be the pressure and where it's coming from. And I think that was an admission <laughs> in the beginning. Yes. Um, so think, just, think about that, uh, like in American history. Yeah. So th think about the big sins of American history. All right. Think of uh, chattel slavery. She would not be teaching or opposing the law of the land in that day. Jim Crow laws. She would not be teaching against those. Right. Like the, these people, she's like Andy Stanley. They won't talk. They don't come against abortion publicly. They don't come against like they don't come against same sex marriage publicly. And which means that the big sins of the culture, they're just going to lay down and accept and try to try to, like you said, make peace with the regime, make peace with Antichrist. If we're following what the Apostle John says in First John 1, First John 4, where he literally calls those who deny Christ are Antichrist. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure Rachel Gilson like most evangelicals in elite circles will lionize abolitionists and uh, MLK and, you know, these figures that are uh, viewed as heroes now. Uh, and because they did not respect certain laws, they oppose certain laws. Um, but yeah, in our own day, it is, it's clear to see where the pressure is coming from and why. Um, so I, I think maybe we've, we've been going uh, more than half an hour, maybe it'd be good to switch gears now and talk a little bit about the reform tradition, because many of the Christians listening are interested in that or the Protestant tradition, really. Uh, when I, when I, I think when you talk about reformed in your book, um, you're talking about historical Protestants uh, in the context of breaking away or trying to purify the Catholic church. So um, you're, you know, you're, you're viewed today as maybe uh, niche or just, you know, you're not in the mainstream, but at one time in our circles, theologically, your view was the accepted view by pretty much everyone. That's the thing your book shows, which I think is so valuable. Uh, in one of the chapters, you, you show Augustine and then you show in detail, and then you show a number of the reformers, some of them I had not even heard of, <laughs> who all agreed with the position that you advocate on concupiscence. So do you, you want to give us maybe a survey of that? And then, you know, what changed? Yeah, sure. So up until the 1500s, as far as confessionally, doctrinally, virtually all Christians believe that evil desire is morally culpable sin. The Roman Catholic Church, even at the Council of Trent, argues that original sin is morally culpable sin. That's why you have to be baptized as an infant to take that original sin away or you go to hell. I mean, that, that's what they argue at Trent. Where Protestants and the Roman Catholics disagreed was not what sin is in a, concerning original sin. What they disagreed on is what what sin is in the in Christians, whether it's in the baptized or in those who have faith. Right? It, it's for Roman Catholics. They argued that once the baptism takes the guilt away, so concupiscence no longer has guilt. And it can no longer produce guilt unless you willfully submit to it. So they believe that sin changed in the baptized. 
But Protestants argue that no, sin remains the same in the baptized. It's just imputed to Christ. Right? It, it, we're no longer held accountable for it. Christ is held accountable for it, and we receive his righteousness. And so that was the big difference. It wasn't over what sin is. But then today, the modern Roman Catholic Church today has a semi-Pelagian view on the doctrine of sin. They believe, they argue it's not just in the baptized that original sin is not morally culpable. But they argue that in everyone it's not morally culpable unless you submit to it. And so it's, it's strange today, but the Council of Trent would say that modern Roman Catholics are heretics. If you go back and you read the Council of Trent, 1540s, um, 1545 to 1563, I think. But if you go read, read just the, you know, the confession that came out of that. And what, what the, the smoking gun, if you will, at Trent is that there were, they produced two forms on the doctrine of concupiscence. The first form had Augustine mentioned and it had Aquinas mentioned, right? Both of them arguing that because there were Augustinian monks that were still in the Roman Catholic Church. They were the minority, though, at that point, because they all were becoming Protestants. Um, but they were arguing that, you know, the the relic of sin, I can't, I can't remember which one it is. I think it's Augustine that says relic. And then one says um, the material or, but both Aquinas and um, Augustine or Thomas is is better to say because Aquinas is where he's from. But but Thomas, both of them were mentioned, but then um, the argument came from those who were dominant that if there's still the relic of sin in Christians, how can there be any form of sin left in Christians and God not hate it? So God would still have to hate the Christian. And so they removed that, and that what actually ended up being published in the, from the Council of Trent it removed both Augustine's quote and Aquinas's quote. But the Roman Catholic catechism that came after that um, put, I believe, put Augustine back in there. And so they were less, um, they were more favorable to, to Augustine, whoever wrote the, I think it was the Pope. You know, the Council of Trent commissioned the Pope to write the, uh, the Catholic catechism that came out of uh, the Council of Trent, and he put um, Augustine back in there. But he still got Augustine wrong because he argues that um, that sinful inclination becomes lust at a later date, like it's not lust itself. But Augustine argues that from the beginning, uh, you know, from the beginning, lust is lust. Like it doesn't become lust at a later date. No, no, no. It, it is from the beginning in your heart, lust. Does that and answer that was, your question? Well, that was a development, too, with Augustine, right? Because you show that uh, he changed his view from his earlier uh, sermons to his later writings and sermons. Yes, um, and I even believe his, so. Even his interpretation of certain passages, uh, like the one we just read, actually, from Romans 7. Um so then you have you have Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and then uh, you know a whole bunch of Melanchthon. You talk about you know, everyone, and uh, they all adopted the Augustine's view essentially on this issue that uh, the stirrings of the heart, the, the, even the initial stirrings, 
are lust. The Westminster Confession, the, you, you go through a number of uh, confessions, catechisms, etc. Um, so the question, I mean, historically, I don't know if anyone's traced this, but the question I had from a history uh, you know, angle is, okay, so this was universally understood. What happened? Is it the last 20 years? Has this been 200 years? I mean, you talk about Spurgeon, you talk about uh, th this view being passed down to Archibald Alexander and, and all these these people from the 19th century who also carried it, Jonathan Edwards uh, in the 17th century, um, or rather 18th century. And so, you know, where was this lost? I think it, it was lost in the Enlightenment and ever since then, um, because we started looking in the mirror instead of looking at the word. So people say, well, how can I be held accountable for something I didn't choose? Which that's men looking upon the outward stuff like we're we're thinking of human courts where you're only judged based on your actions what they can prove right but god looks upon the heart and that's what we've gotten away from we we've basically we have practiced a theology from below or anthropology and that's all revoice is that's all all these people arguing for gay christianity all they're doing is practicing anthropology they're surveying a bunch of people and saying how do you feel you know they're constantly talking about their feelings constantly talking about their attractions whenever biblically speaking our job is to read the word and to believe it and so concerning anthropology we're to believe what the bible says concerning us not what we feel it doesn't matter if you feel like you're sinning or not that is not you're not going to stand before your feelings one day <laughs> you know you're going to stand before god so we'd True. better read his word and believe it. We are who his word says we are. And sin is what God says it is, not what we feel it is. That's right. Um, there's a, a clip I want to play. Before I do, though, I just I had a thought. Uh, we've been doing on the podcast a series on liberalism, which, of course, uh, this is an you know, enlightenment kind of uh, inspired thinking that we all now just accept as true. And I wonder to what extent evangelicals, even conservative ones, are very impacted by liberalism. And um, I mean, even the slogans uh, like you can do everything you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. It's it's wrong to violate anyone's choice. Um, you know, all of these things. Uh, even the diversity is our strength and all of these things kind of coalesce together to create this situation where man is autonomous and any obligations that are not of his choosing, whether that is national borders or labor relationships or even now your gender, th these obligations uh, cannot be forced upon a person because they should consent and consent is the, is the God that many of us worship. And I guess we saw that in Ohio last night, didn't we? Um, with with two issues really it's not just the abortion issue it's also the marijuana issue that it's you can put anything in your body if as long as you consent to it and i know that we don't take that in the evangelical world as far as people in in the world uh, the the um world system do but i think we're impacted by that i think we have an aversion to anything that would be an unchosen obligation and uh and so it just that's my theory that that and I think that lines up with what you're saying, that as the Enlightenment and, and liberalism kind of rose, this view on concupiscence kind of waned. Um, there is a, a clip I want to show you, though, uh, and I'll get your reaction to it. These are a number of Roman Catholic apologists, modern Roman Catholic apologists and priests 
all talking about this topic of concupiscence. And I want people, as we're listening to this clip, think about your evangelical teachers who talk about this issue, especially when it comes to same-sex attraction and whether or not um, it sounds like what you're hearing from these Roman Catholics. In paragraph 1264, just for the folks who may not know what that says, it says, yet certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, such as suffering, illness, death, and such frailties inherent in life as weaknesses of character and so on, as well as an inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence, or metaphorically, the tender for sin, fomus peccati in Latin, right? Since concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with, it cannot harm those who do not consent, but manfully resist it by the grace of Jesus Christ. Indeed, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The Catholic Church Catechism states, homosexual persons are called to chastity by the virtues of self-mastery that teach them their inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship, by prayer and sacramental grace, they can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. The church is not saying that the desire is a sin. See, actions are sins, desires are not. Because you can't be charged with a sin for something you didn't choose, something you can't be in control of. But once we have these attractions to whatever, then I need to choose how I behave. So is concupiscence a sin? See, the, the Protestants uh, confused concupiscence with sin. You know, that, that original sin is in us and we are still in sin and concupiscence is proof of it. It's, it's sin in us, you see. That's wrong. It's, so it's not a sin in itself. Sin comes from the will. That's a very important point. All right. Uh, well, a number of Roman Catholics there. Uh, Tim Staples, uh, Catholic Answers folks. Uh, we had a, uh, a priest at the end there. And, and it sounds like actually the, the, the priest at the end was arguing against the historic Protestant position. Not <laughs> He doesn't realize that modern evangelicals are saying something very similar to what he's saying. Uh, what's your reaction to that? I don't know if you've seen those clips. They wrongfully assume that the will is not involved in concupiscence. The way that Paul describes his flesh, he says in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So Paul talks about his flesh as he is willfully involved in his flesh. They, they mistake, and, and Augustine gets this right too. Augustine says there's a difference between mindfully involved and not mindfully involved. But both are sin. Your will is involved. They're confusing the will with the mind. Um, because how could you have an evil inclination if the will is not involved? Right. Right? How could that happen? Um, so the flesh is willful. Your will is involved. And the only evidence you have to say that it isn't is your personal experience. You don't think it's involved, so therefore it's not. Yeah. Well, can the will feel like it's involuntary at times? That's sure. the question, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I sure. Think so it, can, too. it can feel, but that's it gets back to what does the Bible say versus 
well, I don't feel like I chose it. And, and something, John, something that's interesting, man, is when people talk about their same-sex desires or even desires for lust, heterosexual lust or whatever, they, they talk about personally, you know, I experience same-sex attraction. Like, or I experience, I'm experiencing lust, trying to disconnect themselves from the volitional reality that's occurring in their heart. They're, they're trying to downplay it because no one talks about whenever they want to worship God or whenever they want to do something holy, they never say, I'm experiencing a desire to please the Lord. <laughs> no, it's always, I want to please God. Right. They I take want credit for that one. Yeah, yeah, they want to take credit for the righteous inclinations that the Spirit is producing. But the flesh, oh, no, no, that's not my fault. That's that's an alien that's inside of me or like I'm possessed or I don't, I mean— if you're not desiring, see, the reason why I push so hard against this is because in order to turn from the flesh, you have to first to take responsibility for it. You're the one desiring this. It's not somebody else. And the whole point is that, yes, you do want whatever the flesh is wanting or it wouldn't be an issue. The flesh will only tempt you with what you find to be tempting. And the reason why it's recurring is because you have not repented. People say, well, I've repented. And then they'll, in, in, on this subject, same-sex attraction, they'll say, well, I do repent. I've re I repent all the time. But then they constantly talk about, I have a lifelong same-sex attraction. They, they, those two cannot go together, repentance and lifelong same-sex attraction. Right. You, you have to, you got to first quit talking about yourself. That's really a big issue. If you go listen to Revoice or listen to these people like Alberry. They're constantly talking about their feelings, talking about their attractions. And the key is to talk about Jesus. The only way you're going to overcome your sinful inclinations is to quit running to the mirror, quit talking about, well, am I experiencing this or am I desiring it? Did I do this or is it happening to me? You're constantly looking within to try to discern whether or not you're sinning. You know, just open the Bible. And is it obedient to God? If not, it's sin. That's right. And the remedy to sin is to run to Jesus Christ, not to the mirror, but Alberry, Revoice, Rachel Gilson, Rebecca McLaughlin, um, Tree Week, um, Dean and Sarah, Jackie Hill Perry. Um, I mean, literally all of these people send you running to the mirror to try to figure out if you're sinning or not, rather than opening the Bible and saying, this is sin because it's not obedient to God. Run to Jesus and be healed. You know, the, the purpose of the law is not to send us running to the mirror to self-justified. The purpose of Jesus' temptation is not to send us running to the mirror saying, I'm like Jesus. It's to send us running to Jesus for salvation. Anyway, I'm I'm a preacher, so... No, it's good. I, sermon, I, bro. Keep, keep going if you want. <laughs> I, I have uh, some practical questions that you can take as short or as long as you want to on. Um, th these come from a lot of them from objections to our previous video that we did, man, a year ago, something like that. But conditions is the, the first question I have regarding conditions. Uh, can there be things in one's life? There was someone who reached out to me. Uh, there's actually a few who did with different situations, but one in particular said, look, I was raised in a home where, um, I had someone abusing me and that particular person was, uh, and I'm trying not to be graphic on the podcast here, but uh, for lack of a better term, 
stimulating me in ways that are only appropriate in a marriage scenario. And that stimulation is a biological response that now has been kind of bred into me for the, through my circumstances where I had to, when I became saved, try to overcome this, but it was extremely difficult. And it's still something that, uh, you know, I think maybe the word used was struggle with, but I, I, it's something that I'm aware of that I have. And it's, it's simply biological. This is, and, um, and, and, and my response at the time was, well, I, I think there can be conditions that will make sin more difficult to overcome, but that doesn't mean that you're off the hook as if it's strictly biology and that's all that's going on. So what would you, uh, how would you counsel someone in a, a scenario like that? Yeah, it's a category area to call something the Bible calls sin biology. Um, that's the first thing. You have to call it sin. You have to quit saying that it's biology. Um, again, that's talking about your feelings. You may feel like it's biological, but it's ultimately sin. I mean, if the same thing happened to Jesus, he would not be responding the way that you are um, because he would respond in a sinless way. You know, we know this because when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Um, and so people are, they, they want to categorize things like that in a, um, a different category. But if it's biology, then you're free in Christ to just live according to your biology. Um, but it's not biology, and that's why you're feeling shame and guilt. You're not responsible for the abuse that happened to you, but you are responsible for the desires in you that are contrary to God. And you have to take responsibility for those desires. That's the first step in overcoming them and rejecting them. It's similar to someone who says, well, I was raised by a sadomasochist and um, now I can only, um, you know, I can only consummate my marriage if I participate in some form of sadomasochism. No, no, no. You are who God says you are, not who your flesh says you are. You have to reject those desires that are contrary to God and in this sense, trying to get pleasure from pain. And you have to reject those desires. It may be reject them for a long time before you are able to be sexually aroused in, in, a, in a way to where you can consummate your marriage with your spouse. And this can be a very challenging thing for marriages where that person can't perform. We'll, we'll put, I, don't know, I don't know what word to use, but they can't you know, consummate if they aren't aroused in particular ways because they have so polluted their minds or their minds, you know, they, they pollute, they, they allow their minds to be polluted. And, and so, I mean, this is a practical thing. Pastors now I think have to deal with more and more, especially with pornography as prevalent and now as uh, violent as it is, you know, how, how, where do you even start? You know, this is discouraging for the wife if the husband's like this, which often I know that's the case, but it doesn't always have to be. And, they, they, they just think that there's something in them that's wrong, that they're, you know, that what can they do? And they just want their husband to be attracted to them. Uh, I mean, there's people listening right now, Jared, who uh, I'm sure have this experience to some extent. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've had to counsel people like this. I mean, what do you say to them? Yeah, you, you would have to look at their daily lives because in order to overcome things like that, you have to essentially starve yourself sexually starve your vision, starve the things that you see. I would cut out all electronics, all participation until you're starved in such a way that you long for God's good design. And then you cultivate desires that are in lockstep with God's good design. You know, it's the equivalent of someone who eats dirt. They're eating dirt. 
They love dirt. All they've known is dirt. They get saved and they realize God has provided fruit and vegetables and meat. And we're telling them, look, no, this tastes better. This is what you were designed for. Stop eating the dirt. No, no, I want to eat dirt. No, you were made for better things. Right. Right. Look at what God has designed you for. Look at what he's designed your body for. And you cultivate desires that are in lockstep with God's word. And so I would encourage the, the person so to where your your mind is in lockstep with God's word, thinking of distinct feminine beauty and distinct masculine beauty. And so the way that God has designed males and females to be males and females for his glory and to see in that in your spouse and recognizing that beauty. And that could be the begin beginning of a sexual attraction for your spouse based on something that God calls good. That's good. Right? And so that's what I would pursue. And if you're single, then you pursue the marriage covenant, the goodness of the marriage covenant and wanting to consummate in that covenant. Right. That's what you're aimed at. Like I tell my boys, you know, I've got three boys and I'm telling them their bodies are telling them to get married. I don't tell them your body's telling you to have sex. It's not. It's telling you to get married according to God's design. Find a spouse, consummate the marriage. Hmm. That That's good. And I want to get to that, too, because I think the, the whole dating courtship, uh, that inner period there between marriage and uh, well, maybe we should just do it now since we're already on it. Sure. Um, we talked about this a little bit before, uh, but th this is something I'm going to be honest. I still uh, I don't know if I have hangups, but I, I, I have to like think through it because maybe it's the way I'm wired or me. I don't know what it is, but um, you talk about in your book, there, there's a quote where you say uh, something along the lines of, you know, you weren't created if you're a male to have a desire for women, you're created to have a desire for your wife. Right. And the, the difficulty I think is that in this period where you are trying to find a wife, you can, there, there's an attraction that you can feel uh, for multiple women. And that's one of the things that I guess, not, not multiple, but what I mean is like, you can be attracted to one person and then realize that you don't really know them. Maybe that's not the person. And then you'll date or court another person. And right. So, so you, oftentimes we'll get to know a few different people before you land on, this is the spouse. This is the one I'm in a covenant with. And there can be various levels of attraction in, in that process. Um, can any of that attraction be non-sinful? Can there be a recognition of beauty or, um, you know, qualities that you, th that you like, but it's not, uh, you're, you're not violating any future covenant you're going to make with your spouse in that process. The reason I'm asking is this is such a, uh, a challenge for the conf for teens today and twenty somethings in a culture where we just we just hook up now, right? And in the church, we're fighting about dating and courtship, and like it's all confused. So give us some guidance on that. Yeah, sure. So it is a good thing to notice the beauty of an opposite sex person, um, if that is in a a. <laughs> you're not wanting to consummate with them, right? You're not, you're not wanting, it's not lust. It's not the beginning of the lust of the flesh. In other words, if you were in the garden of Eden, you would say that person's beautiful. I mean, we assume everybody'd be naked, right? Like, I mean, everybody, there wouldn't be any clothes. You'd have an entire population in the world. Everybody's naked and yet no one would lust, you know? And, um, 
So, you know, when you're looking for a spouse, Paul says you're supposed to look for the good works that are in alignment with God's Word, that that's what true beauty is. And yes, there is physical beauty as well, but we, the way that in part of our culture, we shouldn't even be aware of our future spouse's breasts or body or figure before we're even married. That, that's just the culture we live in. This is something peculiar to West to the West because of the clothes that people wear. Like e even when we're talking about attraction, it's very much because of where we live. I mean, if you live back in Bible times, you would not be aware of your spouse's figure before you got married. I mean, a little bit, but nothing like today, right? Nothing like is present today. So I think we have to encourage folks to find the godliest person they can to marry. And it is okay to desire to consummate that marriage one day. But to desire to consummate it now is the issue. That's a good distinction. Um, I, I think that helps a lot to say, hey, it's okay to want to do that in the future in that covenant, because that's what God wants. Uh, I, I was thinking, though, as you, you were talking about the figure thing, um, you know, Jacob, who he desired Rachel, but not Leah. And, and and it talks about Leah's eyes were dim and these. So there was something physical there, at least in the facial features sure. that attracted him. I mean, obviously, that's a story that's not necessarily instruction for us, but it that does seem to be the natural way that people uh, find themselves. Uh, sure find themselves together they're they're attracted to each other and that is part of the recipe like uh, all these other qualities of course should be priorities and maybe higher priorities because god says they are but i i just don't see a way to get around like the, the physical part's got to be there somewhere like sure. in a non-lustful way somehow right so that's the key okay we're in, in agreement then a non a non-lustful way like as long as you aim that towards the covenant, like God is telling me to cut a covenant with this woman, you can't aim it towards sex. It has to be, you know, these desires are for the covenant, right? To cut a covenant with this person. Because otherwise, if you don't, if it's not aimed at the covenant, then what happens if it doesn't work out? Then here you have desired to consummate a marriage with a woman you're not going to marry. And That's now right. you're going to marry somebody else. And you marry that person, but you've still got all this previous desire for consummation. I mean, you, you, you know, God can heal. You can repent. You know what I'm saying? Like, but you're going to wish that you had not desired to consummate that marriage with somebody else. That's right. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, what about dreams? <laughs> okay. Someone has a dream, uh, sexual in nature. You think of the young man who is uh, just starting to experience puberty and has a dream and the question has been whether or not these these dreams which don't arise from uh at least something that seems voluntary because you're sleeping are in fact sinful now i've always confessed if i ever had a dream where i did anything wrong if i killed someone in a dream i can't remember doing that but i if, if there's anything that i feel guilty about i just confess it but there is a, a strong teaching, because I've heard it from many quarters in Christianity, at least this assumption that you're not on the hook for dreams. So what do you think? Dreams, who, sinful, not? Who had the dream? 
<laughs> yeah, you did. So you're responsible. I mean, you can say I'm not mindfully involved, but it's the same way with the flesh, right? We're talking about ourselves to try to get ourselves out of sin when we should be talking about Jesus. I just assume we're sinning more than we realize <laughs> because yeah. if we have a Savior. Why do we need to try to figure out, oh, I'm not responsible? You know, why are we trying to self-justify? Because that's what this boils down to. We're trying to say, well, I'm not responsible for this. I'm not responsible for that. I'm not responsible. Literally, we're the ones who are having these desires. They're coming from our heart. If we were in the garden, we wouldn't be having these nocturnal things, these emissions. We wouldn't be having these dreams. If we're in heaven, we're not having these dreams. Like, I, I just assume that we're responsible for it. And I don't try to discern where and what happened to make me responsible or why I'm having this dream yeah. or, you know, my, my flesh is evil. That's why, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like a little devil inside of me. You know, it came from the devil. Yeah. It came, you know, came in Adam and Eve, it came from the devil and ours came from Adam. Right. So, so anyway, but so you're, you're not someone, maybe we can land the plane on this since we've been going over an hour, but you're not someone who uh, that stereotypical kind of puritanical, always looking out for where sin is right and, and navel gazing to find out where's the sin so you can try to destroy it like you're living your life in a normal way understanding that it's messy that people sin and that's what christ that's why he died that's what the gospel's for and and so you're applying that then to your own life and the lives of, of others under your care uh not reaching out to condemn uh, immediately and because uh, i i do see this stereotype and i've actually experienced the stereotype myself because it exists of people who um they they might even have you know this is what the bible does say but then they're, they're almost robotic they're not even human because they're so again they're obsessed with themselves they're always looking at themselves and where did i sin and oh man i gotta cut that out now and i gotta and um looking to christ i think takes a lot of that burden well, it takes all the burden, right? Yeah, he's the only one who can take the burden away. You you have to say it's I mean, it's good to say, Well, the Bible says that sin. I had that inclination. I'm responsible. I run to Jesus. I reject that sin. And I seek to cultivate desires that are in agreement with God's word. But at the end of the day, I sleep like someone who's saved. Right. I, I sleep like someone who has Sin has been imputed to Christ, and he's literally taken, he's expiated my sin. He's taken it all away. He's propitiated God's wrath towards me, satisfied it eternally, and given me his righteousness. It is his work that saves me, not my own. And so, yes, I seek to live out of his work a godly life. But where I fall short, I rest in Christ and not the mirror. You know, right. I, no, I don't need to self-justify. I don't need to make excuses. I have a Savior who intercedes for me. And you do too, listener, if you're trusting in Jesus. You need to believe all that the Bible says concerning you, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're not, you're not the Amish. You're not a monk. You're not trying no. to live outside the world so you don't have to, you know, you're living in it and you're experiencing the temptations that come your way, but you're going to Christ and fleeing to him. Amen. So that's that's the goal. That's the goal for every Christian uh, who's listening. So they can get the book. And I would recommend, even if this is something you you think you have a handle on, um, it's a good book to get just as a reference because there's so many good pieces of history and then pieces of also biblical exegesis in it. Um, you can go to the website freegracepress.com and get Lust of the Flesh by Jared Moore. And uh, 
And, and if you want to give it to your friends or do a, a study, it seems like a good book for a book study. You could just take a chapter a week, discuss. Is there, there's not like an accompanying Q&A type uh, discussion manual, is there? No? Okay. There's not. But if folks have any questions or critiques or comments, they can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore, and I will do my best to help in any way or even if you want to complain or whatever i'll do my best to respond yeah i appreciate that so all the complaints don't send them to me jared no, H. Moore send them Twitter. to john send them to send john, them to john. <laughs> <laughs> i'll get them anyway but uh no I, I i appreciate the openness there so um people can find uh, jared moore on twitter he's also got a youtube channel you can type in dr jared moore on youtube and uh, he is the pastor of Cumberland Homesteads Baptist Church. If you are in the area, what area is that? Where, where, where it's at Crossville, Tennessee. So Crossville. it's right in Middle Tennessee. Yeah, my brother was looking at that. He wanted to move there. I oh, think. cool. So I don't know what's happening with that, but anyway, uh, beautiful area. Well, uh, God bless, Pastor Moore. Thank you once again, John. Thank you, brother. Keep at it, man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.